Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of March 22nd from Pastor Brett Cottrell. Wherever you are seated today, wherever you are, I would like you to take out your, your Bibles. Open them up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. We as a church have been going through the Gospel of Mark for some time now, and especially as we lead up to Resurrection Sunday and begin to look at that. We are wrapping up this book and looking at those last few hours of Jesus' life and ministry here on earth. So Mark chapter 15, you go ahead and be turning to that. I want to tell you a little bit of a story this morning. Now, uh, for those who have known me in the past, in previous years, and in previous areas of ministry, I was sometimes known for skiing stories. And if I have some of my friends from Georgia, they're going to laugh at that a little bit. Believe it or not, I really haven't told too many ski stories in the last few years, but I want to tell one this morning. I was in high school, a friend of mine and I were heading down a slope, I think we were in southwestern Colorado, and uh, it was not a particularly difficult area. We were kind of in a large, uh, fairly steep, but not a lot of moguls, not a lot of hills, not a lot of things, obstacles, just a wide open area, and we're just kind of Skis pointed straight down, going as fast as we can. I don't know exactly what happened, but my friend was off to my left, just a little bit, slightly ahead of me. I think his ski must have caught a, a rut or something in the snow. And the next thing I see is I see a ski popping off both directions and him just tumbling down into a snowball. And I did what any good friend would do. I laughed. I thought it was hilarious, so I was just watching my friend wipe out big time. Now, here's the thing about going fast downhill. When your attention is off of where you're going, what happens to you? Well, you can guess. No more than I began laughing at my friend off here to the left, I found myself doing the exact same thing and tumbling down in a large snowball behind him. And I'm sure there was somebody behind us laughing at both of us. It's amazing what can happen to us when we take our eyes off of the things that we're really supposed to be paying attention to. As we come to the Gospel of Mark chapter 15, these first 15 verses of this chapter, we're going to see primarily three individuals. We're going to see Pilate, we're going to see Barabbas, and we're going to see Jesus. Two men and a Savior. And we're going to be tempted and we are going to take a brief moment to look at both Pilate and Barabbas this morning. But one thing we're going to see is that there's really only one here that we really need to be paying close attention to. Mark chapter 15, verse 1. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, it is as you say. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, 
Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. And answering them again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word this morning. Would your spirit teach us and guide us into your truth? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have a number of individuals we could look at this morning. I want to briefly, though, begin by looking at Pilate. Now, most of us have heard the name. We know perhaps a little bit about him. Uh, most of probably what we know is just found here in the Gospels, his role in the crucifixion and trial of Jesus. He was, in fact, the Roman governor. He was appointed by the emperor himself to govern the area that included Jerusalem. Now, outside of Scripture, we know a little bit about Pilate. Pilate, from other places in history, was actually attached to the emperor by family. He was married into the family of the emperor, if you will. He was also known to be cruel. He despised the Jewish leadership. He was known to have killed people, shed blood, even in the temple area. He was notorious for having defamed the temple. The Jews thought him multiple times guilty of blasphemy. He cared little for the worship of God or for those who followed him, and he was no admirer necessarily of Jesus. He probably couldn't have cared about Jesus one way or the other. And yet here in these 15 verses, we see that at the very least, Pilate is unsure about Jesus. He hasn't really made up his mind. The truth is, he knows Jesus is brought to him not for any real crime, but because the Jewish leaders don't like him. It says there he knows that they brought him there out of envy. So Pilate is, perhaps like many of us even this morning, or many of this morning in our world, not really strongly feeling about Jesus one way or the other. He's there. We know other people feel passionately about him. We know some hate him. We know some love him. But to, but to many, Jesus is just another figure. And that's what he really is to Pilate. There's also another individual in this particular account by the name of Barabbas. And we know very little of him other than what we see in the Gospels. Uh, Barabbas, at the very least we know, was a rebel. He was an insurrectionist. He was a terrorist. He had been part of, whether he was leading or just simply one of the members, part of a group who had led some type of armed assault uh, against the Romans. Um, he had been guilty of murder and people knew his reputation. <clears throat> it's kind of interesting, the name Barabbas is actually a surname. It's, it's, a, it's a family name. The name Barabbas, Bar, actually means son or son of, and then Abbas. Well, if you know too much about the New Testament, you might recognize Abba as father. Barabbas' name literally means son of the father. Now, it is in other traditions, uh, some of those dating back to early in church tradition, say that Barabbas's given name, his first name, if you will, is actually Yeshua, 
or Joshua, or as we know it, Jesus. Now, the name Jesus was actually a fairly common name in, in Jewish days in the first century as people were wanting their children, their sons, to be the ones that God would use to save Israel. So the fact that Barabbas might have shared the name Jesus with our Savior is not entirely impossible. So it may be that what we have here are two Jesuses, one who was a murderer, one who was a terrorist, one who was a revolutionary, and one who is, well, something altogether different, one who is, in fact, our Savior. One would be innocent, one would be guilty. And the truth is, even this morning, we're going to find ourselves ultimately choosing, as the people of Israel did in Mark chapter 15, with the choice of one of two Jesuses. Which one this morning would we have shouted for? Now, this morning we can look at Pilate, and there are things to be learned there. We could look at even the Jewish leaders that we looked at more of last week as we were in Mark chapter 14, and we could learn some things there. And perhaps we can learn some things from Barabbas, and we will get back to him in just a few moments. But like the story I told before about the scheme, of all the things that we could focus on in this passage this morning, it really isn't Pilate, it really isn't Barabbas, it's not even the people around them, it's not the Jewish leaders. The text is calling us to look really at just one individual. And that individual is Jesus Christ. He's the one that our attention is being drawn to in this passage. And even as we are gathered this morning and and the truth is, our minds today are probably on any number of very important things. Our last 10 days in this country have been unlike anything that most of us have really ever experienced. And there is no doubt that each and every day our minds and our attention have been drawn to any number of things, some of which are important. But as we come together this morning, I think it's probably pretty important for us to remember that each and every day, not just today, there's really only one who is demanding and worthy of most of our attention. And that's the one to whom we're talking about this morning. His name is Jesus. In Romans chapter 15, as this passage begins, Pilate begins by asking Jesus a question. He asks him that question in verse 2, and he'll, answer, he'll ask him again. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, this is a title that throughout the entire Gospel of Mark has not been asked or been even associated with Jesus directly. So this is not a question that Pilate's coming up with on his own. It's a question that he's being fed. Jesus is being accused by the Jewish leaders of claiming to be the king of the Jews. Now, why is this important? Well, because Pilate couldn't care less about any religious titles Jesus might have. He couldn't care less about any religious squabbles inside the Jewish nation. But however... He would be interested or he would be concerned if someone is claiming to be a rival to the Roman emperor. So they give him this title, King of the, King of the Jews. So that's what Pilate asks him. Are you the King of the Jews? And, and Jesus, for the most part, is silent, but he does say this. It's as you say. This is the equivalent of saying this. Are you the King of the Jews? Well, you said it. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. Doesn't give him much else to go on. In fact, Pilate deduces pretty quickly that Jesus really isn't the threat, necessarily politically speaking, 
that the Jewish leaders are making him out to be. And then the rest of the time, Jesus is completely quiet. Doesn't say anything. We saw even last week that Jesus really only made one statement as he was being confronted by the Jewish leaders. It was kind of interesting. We noted last week, as we looked at the, the trial before the Sanhedrin, that they could not get their story straight. They were having real difficulty in convicting Jesus of anything because they couldn't get their lies straight. And even here before Pilate, they really can't get a conviction unless, believe it or not, Jesus kind of helps them. He doesn't say much, but he says just enough to allow him to be kept on trial. The truth is, it's a reminder to us that without Jesus' plan and even his cooperation, they won't be able to kill him. They won't be able to crucify him. And so Jesus is paving the way, even with his silence, for him to, him to be crucified. He is, in fact, quiet enough. The crowd, of course, in all this will reject him. The Jewish people will reject him. They will, when given a choice between Barabbas and Jesus, they will yell out to crucify Jesus, and they will yell to release Barabbas, rejecting our Savior. Now, among all these things, the fact that Jesus was relatively quiet, the fact that he's on trial, the fact that the people are rejecting him, tells us one more thing about Jesus and all this, and that is that he is fulfilling prophecy in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. We are told in Isaiah chapter 53 that he would be despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Later on in Isaiah 53, it says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter, and like a sheep that's silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So even in all that he's doing, Jesus is affirming to us in Mark chapter 15 that he is in fact the servant of Isaiah chapter 53. He's letting us know even in what's going on and how the trial is being taken place. He's affirming to those who are paying attention that he is the chosen one of God, chosen before the foundations of the world. I'm sure Peter, James, all those who are around Jesus who were experiencing watching this probably found themselves, in fact, we know we found themselves scared, in shock, wondering what's going to happen next, unsure of what their own futures held. And the truth is, many of us this morning are perhaps asking the same thing. What do the next few weeks hold? And it's not just about health. It's not just about whether I may catch a virus or not, or whether someone I know might be sick. It's about our jobs. It's about how I'm going to pay the bills six weeks from now. We have a lot of uncertainty in front of us and perhaps even a lot of fear. But understand, if our Lord God who created the universe planned these events before the, the first light was shown, before the first animals took their breath, before the first plants bathed in sunshine, that the events that we're experiencing even this morning were known by our Lord a long, long time ago. And nothing that we are experiencing this morning or the, day, or the next day or the day after or a month from now will be a surprise to the Lord who will keep His promises to us under all circumstances. Jesus is letting us know that He is in fact, even by His silence, that He is in fact the one whom God set to be here from before the creation of the world. Pilate was unsure of who He is. The Jewish leaders were... Uh, 
thought he was a false prophet. The people of Jerusalem, the ones who yelled out, crucify him, just a few days before, they had been singing Jesus' praises as he came into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, we might ask this morning, what would take a group of people one day to praising him and on the next day to be yelling out things like crucify him? Well, we could perhaps hazard some guesses. We can't know for sure what every individual was thinking, but a couple of things might have been in place. One, now he is at least officially a convicted criminal in the eyes of the Jewish people. The Sanhedrin, the highest court in the land, has convicted him of blasphemy and of being a heretic, if you will. So maybe that swayed some people's minds. They were clearly kind of inciting some people and probably giving some propaganda in the background. They were misinforming people as to who Jesus really was. But as we look at these two individuals on the platform in front of Pilate, Barabbas and Jesus, I think one other thing might be in play. Remember that for most people in Jesus' day, when they thought of the idea of Messiah or a Savior, they thought of someone who would remove the, uh, the, the, the reign of terror of Rome over their lives, someone who would give them freedom, someone who would, who would fight back and give them political and military and social freedom. And those things are, are good things to want. The people of Israel were not without reason to justifiably want those things. Barabbas, whatever else he had been, seems to have been someone who, if you will, picked up a weapon and was trying to be part of a revolution to throw off the Roman government. And so for the people of Israel who stood before Pilate that day, what they saw was someone who, failed or not, was at least picking up a sword and trying to throw out the Romans what they perceived would be a Messiah. And then the other one they had in front of them was a teacher who was telling them things like to forgive their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. There was no doubt they faced a choice here between two men. And maybe there were some in that crowd who said, well, Barabbas is the type of guy who can lead us out of Rome's tyranny. Jesus will not. Maybe that's a reason. Maybe they saw in Jesus somebody they didn't, in the end, think could actually get the job done. They began to perhaps, along with Pilate, along with the religious leaders of Jerusalem in that day, they began to put upon Jesus their own expectations, failed or not, wrong or right. Even this morning, the truth is we can bring to the gospel, we can bring to the scripture, we can bring to our idea of Jesus our own ideas of who we wanted Jesus to be. Throughout history, there have been person after person and movement after movement who have taken Jesus and not presented him as he presented himself, but presented him as they wanted him to be. We have, so many of us, have adopted Jesus to be and to serve our own personal desires, our own personal political aims, our own military aims, our own social or professional goals. We have made Jesus to be what we want him to be for us. And sometimes when confronted with the Jesus of Scripture, we reject Him in favor for a Jesus that we would rather have. I don't know if everyone in Jesus' day was doing the exact same thing, but it's possible that some were. And I would even this morning caution us to be careful that we do not put on Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels, something that He was not doing, but that we put on Him something that He claimed, that we only take what He has done for us. So Jesus will, in fact, be handed over by the Romans to 
this idea of crucifixion. And he will, of course, ultimately be crucified. These last few weeks have perhaps been unlike any other we have ever experienced. I remember the first time in my life, um, the first time I was ever paying attention to the news, if you will, the first time events of the broader world at least had some measure of impact on my memory. The first one I can remember that was not that it impacted my life a great deal, but I remember the events. I remember people around me responding in a very serious way was in 1981. I was 12 years old, and speaking of skiing, we were actually on a ski trip. We were in Colorado, and the word came out that President Reagan had been shot. And I remember the impact. I don't remember all the details. I was 12 years old, not really paying attention to the world of international news. But I remember the responses of those around me and thought, this is a big deal. A few years later, the next one I can remember was 1986. I was in high school. And the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded just moments after launch. And that one I remember much more, uh, much more closely. I remember watching for hours over and over again the, the shuttle exploding and just the, the national depression, if you will, how it impacted people far beyond the individual families or the people who knew the astronauts who had died. I, re- I remember those events. 1991, I'm actually on staff at my first church. I'm doing youth and music, and the first Gulf War began. And I remember watching on the news that night the the missiles landing in Baghdad. I had never personally lived through any real military conflict at that point in time, and it it was the first time I remember being aware of something that was that large and would have an impact on our lives, perhaps. 2001. 9-11, and we know the worldwide impact of that event and how our lives have really never been the same in the 18 and a half years since. History has yet to tell us what the virus, the coronavirus, what impact that will have on our culture and on our history moving forward, but there's no doubt that in the last two or three weeks it has had an impact like few things ever have. And we can be tempted, drawn into, overwhelmed by the the absolute tidal wave of news and stories of what's going on as a result of the coronavirus. And some of those things need to be paid attention to. Don't, Don't misunderstand me. But as we consider these things, as we look to our world, as we love our neighbors, as we Take the gospel of peace to those around us. Let me suggest this morning that our, our, that our ultimate attention should not be on these things or these things or all these other things that are out there. But our ultimate attention, even in the midst of a crisis, needs to be the one who has the peace and the calm in the storm. And that is Jesus. This whole sequence of events the trial and all that's going on around it, there is only one who is really in control. And it's not Pilate. It's not the the Jewish leaders. It's not the disciples for sure. It is Jesus. Do not spend too much time in these days with your gaze away from Jesus Christ. It's necessary to be informed and up to date and aware of what's happening in our world. 
But don't let yourself get overwhelmed by that. Instead, focus your attention upon Christ. We can look at Pilate and his motivations. We can look at Barabbas and his situation. And there's something, again, that we can learn from both those things. But this text is concerned with Christ. The most important conversations you can have with someone this week, the most important conversations parents you can have with your children, the most important conversations you can have with your co-workers or the people at the grocery store, the most important conversations you can have online, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, are about Jesus Christ, about what He has done for us, about the love He has for us. Those are the most important things that we can be talking about in these next coming days. Let me invite you to consider this one who's at the middle of this storm. We read this earlier this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This Barabbas, who was guilty, who had committed murder, who had taken matters into his own hands, who deserved everything that was about to happen to him as far as jail and perhaps crucifixion, finds himself walking away free because of the one who was innocent and who took his place. For you and I this morning, the truth is we are in the same situation as Barabbas. For you and I stand before God this morning guilty. Guilty of anything that might be dealt out to us. And yet we have one who said that he will step in and take our place. So the question is this morning, which of these two men will you look at? Which one of these two men will you just give your allegiance to? Are you going to be like Pilate and be on the fence? Will you be like the Jewish leaders who have decided he's already evil? Or will you take the one who gave his life for you? Barabbas' life is a failed life. His methods are failed methods. His goals are failed goals. And the truth is, apart from Christ, so are yours and mine. This morning you have before you one who, if you choose him, will take up your failures, take up your failed goals. He will redeem them, and he will put his in your place. I hope your attention this morning is upon the one who gave his life for you, your substitute. May your heart and your eyes this week be focused on Jesus Christ in pursuit of Him. Don't make Jesus into something you think you want. Don't miss Jesus by spending hours upon other things. But consider Him as the one who brings peace to the storm, whose words even today not only created but sustain our world, who gave His life that you and I might have new life. No matter what war, disaster, or even disease comes our way. Jesus Christ is the shepherd who gave his life for us, the sheep. 
He is the king sacrificed in place of the rebel. He is the innocent taking the place of the guilty. He is the creator dying for the created. Pursue and look at Jesus this morning.